Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of books on a wide range of topics, both fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Jody Eckert Dejen, who's the next smart step, How to Overcome Gender Stereotypes and Build a Stronger Organization, co-authored with Kelly Watson, has been published by Charles Bridge, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Jody. Hi. Would you mind starting us off with a brief excerpt from the book? Sure. I'm going to read a story about Tom. So Tom is a mid-level manager who is seeking promotion to senior leadership. He has an impeccable record with the company. His career story is shared with new hires. He started in the Portland, Maine office right out of college. He worked evenings and weekends, outproducing those around him. Soon he was running the office and then the Maine region. He treated clients well, took them out in golf outings and to sporting events. He submitted his, his extensive relationships and status within the industry. He's recruited many bright stars to the organization, some from his own school and as a mentor for many up-and-coming employees. His region sales growth has always been consistent. Company considers him a model employee. The employees in Tom's region are mostly white and mostly male, except for the administrative and maintenance staff. Most of Tom's customers are white men. Tom has always happily taken the firm's diversity and inclusion training, as well as the required sexual harassment classes. He's never been accused of harassment, and most people would agree that he has never done anything that could be considered sexist. He feels he treats everyone exactly the same. On his annual review, there's a section for human rights that is meant to reflect Tom's treatment of women, among others. Tom routinely gets an A grade in this section. The company promotes Tom to run the Northeastern region, which includes Boston and New York City. He inherits a staff and customer base that includes women, people of color, LGBTQ members, and millennials. Now Tom starts to struggle. A woman manager complains to her colleagues because he asks her to make copies and take notes in meetings. An African-American man skips critical mentorship opportunities because Tom holds most events at his golf club, which up until recently didn't even allow people of color as members. A Chinese-American customer quietly moves their business to a competitor because of a light joke Tom made one night at dinner about fortune cookies. Over several years, Tom's team demographics shift back to a team of all white men through turnover and attrition, so the complaints about his leadership cease. In fact, his team routinely rates him highly because of his ability to connect with them and meet their needs on a social level. His customer demographics are similarly reflective of his team demographics, and many of his customers become personal friends. Nobody complains to HR about Tom or even has a conversation about diversity on Tom's team. He swears he fosters a meritocracy and says he hires and promotes only the best. The guys on his team are all hardworking and dynamic people. When sales drop, most people attribute the loss to a new dynamic competitor rather than to Tom's team. So when an even more senior level role opens up, the company considers Tom as one of the few candidates qualified for the role. So now you stuck with us. No doubt you see the problem. Tom clearly lacks the ability to build, foster, and sustain a diverse team, but his weaknesses are hidden to the organization and their impact on his performance is hard to measure. In addition to his lack of experience with building and managing diversity, Tom has no understanding of bias and culture and doesn't have the motivation to do anything about it. He probably doesn't understand the benefits of having a diverse team. He's never had to. His management style is one-dimensional. Be like me and you'll succeed. 
This style has a significant impact on the team's ability to innovate and attract diverse customers. But not only has he gotten away with it, he appears to flourish without these skills and is even rewarded. His influence is now spilled to another part of the organization, touching other managers. As he rises higher and higher and his influence further masculinizes and homogenizes the culture, the organization has no idea it's fostering a monochromatic workplace. So it's no surprise the organization has become vulnerable to competitors, those with managers better equipped to manage an increasingly diverse workforce and customer base. Organizations with Tom's approach to leadership exist because inclusivity hasn't been recognized as a critical leadership competency. It hasn't been effectively measured, cultivated, or rewarded. The ability to lead inclusively is not included in most workforce scorecard metrics, and if it is, it's usually a tiny bullet or subjective checkmark, which is somehow supposed to represent the necessary skills. Also, few leaders have enough confidence with the topic to effectively rate or coach others, and let's face it, it doesn't get measured or critiqued because who wants to give somebody a lower-than-perfect score in a category called human rights? Complicating this lack of understanding and competency is the sensitivity around being accused of sexism. Defensiveness can stymie growth, so nobody wants to go there. But hold on a minute. If somebody lacks experience working with professional women, how is it that they could have acquired these skills? How will they ever learn if nobody will talk about it? People need honest evaluation and feedback in order to learn. They also need space to make mistakes in the process. Mistakes help us learn. If we evaluate inclusive leadership skills only in a category like human rights or diversity, we risk creating a potentially explosive context that most people want to avoid. So maybe this is why most companies seem to measure diversity and inclusion in terms of training, how much knowledge people have, how effectively it's been implemented. They get to avoid the emotional risk. Yes, getting trained about unconscious bias matters, but it is only one stage in the capability development process. You also have to be able to do something positive with the information. As a leader, that means helping people overcome bias, reframe flawed assumptions, and remove barriers so that everybody can succeed. Thank you. Could you put that excerpt in the context of the book as a whole? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we're really trying to convey, well, there's three things we're trying to convey. You know, organizations haven't made much leeway in terms of getting women and people of color into senior leadership roles. Hasn't really changed much. We've been studying this since 2004 and not much has changed. Yes, we're inching up, but last year there was this huge celebration because there were now 6% of women in the Fortune 500 as CEOs versus 5%. You know, at this pace, McKinsey's predicting that it's going to take, you know, 200 plus years for us to get to parity. And so the reason that organizations struggle here is because they have to think about how do we change our mindset? They have to figure out how do we give our leaders the skills to lead inclusively, which is exactly what I was just reading about with Tom. And then the third thing that our book really highlights is you've got to create and change the processes that make being unbiased in a process like hiring or promotion easy, the easy default response, rather than the biased approach being the easy and default approach. So all of this is doable. And so our book really tries to make it practical and easy for people to implement. Early in the book, you refer to three key insights that you and your co-author came up with that sort of shaped the approach in the book. Could you just briefly talk about those three insights? 
So the first key insight is that meritocracy doesn't exist. And so it's really, really funny because I can't tell you the number of organizations or organizational leaders that, that we've worked with where it's almost the first thing out of their mouth. We hire for merit. So therefore, we can't have a problem. But the thing is, is this. If you look at the bottom of your organization, and most organizations are like this, and it's 50-50 women, say. And then you look at the top of your organization, and it's 10% women and 20 and 90% men. If that's meritocracy, then basically what you're saying, what organizational leaders are saying, is, is that the women are not as qualified. They couldn't be, because if it was meritorious, there it would be look at the top just like it looks at the bottom. This is true of any type of category, ethnicity, whatever it is that you're measuring. If it was meritorious, then the statistics would be the same across your organization. If it was meritorious, your statistics would mirror what's going on in the industry. If they don't, then there's a problem here because you're not getting the best talent. And so we like to talk about it as so many organizations are leaving the talent on the table. Like you wouldn't do that for any other business opportunity. If there was an untapped customer market, you'd go straight for it. But you don't. Most organizational leaders don't because they're not seeing it. Just like in the story with Tom, they're not seeing all these invisible ways that merits actually weeded out of the system. Our key insight number two is that women are not more biologically predisposed to certain roles like parenting and nurturing others. And the reason we say that is because in a lot of our research, and there's other research as well, this idea that women are the nurturers, women are the ones who should be in HR, what types? Writ large. Because we've made this assumption that you know the women are the ones who have to take care of the children in this automated teaching that's going on. You know, why is it that it's defaulted to the mother? The other thing that's happened is, is that in a lot of the caring industries or event planning or some of these front facing, because they were predominantly female dominated, when that industry got hit, the women lost their jobs. And so the problem we've got is that when we say that women are better in certain roles, we get this bifurcation of where women are in the workplace. And then we are not, again, leveraging the full talent base. The third insight is that gender equity inclusion are a business problem, not an HR problem. Virtually every organization that we work with has asked L&D or HR to solve the problem of inclusion. And the problem is, is that it ends up being hived off into one department who has full responsibility for solving the problem across the organization. But because, just like in my example with Tom, that it's so operationally embedded, HR can't do it all. This has got to be a cross-functional, across-organization, across-structure process of change that everybody is involved in. We talk about this as this has got to be a strategic initiative. So you throw your best people on it and you get representation across the organization. And that's how you're going to make change. So are there any types of businesses or industries that are better than others? And if so, why at gender equity? So there are a few, but it's really interesting. It actually doesn't matter the industry. Men dominate in senior leadership. That's true across industries. However, within that context, healthcare is doing better, especially biotech. They're doing better in terms of getting more women to senior leadership. And I think in part, that's because it's a relatively new industry. And in healthcare, it's been, it's a little more uh, female dominated. So therefore they, it's easier to get in. But then when you drill down, for example, and you look at the large companies of biotech, 
the women aren't as representative. Or you look at, for example, say surgery, the women aren't as representative. So it depends. But writ large, healthcare and biotech um, are predominantly, you know, are much more equitable. And then nonprofits, similarly, a lot more equitable in terms of gender. But then again, as you drill down, if you look at the larger nonprofits, they tend to be run by men than versus women. So even in the industries that are more female-oriented, you still see a, a reduced percentage of women in executive leadership or senior leadership. And then you bring race into it, and the numbers get even worse. And thinking back to when you started to study this issue, would you have expected the United States to have made more progress than it has in this area? So I'm always of two minds with this question, because there's no doubt that we've made a lot of change, because I think the biggest change has been because the combination of Me Too and BLM, Black Lives Matter, there is now a significant amount more of discussion going on in the public space and within organizations about this issue. Organizations are starting to see that they've really got to do something. I think the other thing that's changed for the positive is that the millennials and Gen Zs are basically like, what are you talking about? I don't have time for this noise. And they're basically using their feet to walk. And they want to work in a diverse organization. They don't want to work on Tom's team. They don't want to be working with, you know, the, the old school type of leadership approach. And so they're going to walk. They just that's just what that generation's more free to do. And so there's these external pressures that are really pushing organizations to change. The, the another external pressure is this idea of um, collaboration and increased pressure from around innovation. And so as a result, you need to get diversity. All you got to do is go look at a forest, a rainforest, for example, to look at the level of diversity that's going on in there and how there's so much synergy across that diversity. And you can see how resilient that rainforest is compared to a homogenous, you know, farm out in the Midwest, which has to use megatons of fertilizer in order to be productive. So when you do that comparison, you can see homogeneity actually takes a lot of work to keep up, and it's not very innovative. All it takes is one big giant disease to wipe out that Midwest farm because it's all homogenous. Same thing happens within organizations. You have a homogenous team, it's going to be really hard for them not to get slapped upside the head with the latest disruptor. And so therefore, bringing in that diversity, that mindset, there's an enormous amount of, of market pressure for organizations to change. And yet, they are not. They are changing, but it is glacial for a lot of the reasons that I've been talking about. So I'm mixed. There's a part of me that sees this external, this exogenous pressure, and it gets excited. And then I'm looking at what organizations are doing and how they're responding, and I'm like, oh, my God, these people don't want to change the way power is operated. So it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't be definitive. Understood. Are there countries that are ahead of the United States in terms of gender equity in the workplace? So I have to laugh here because um, a lot of people look to the Northern Europeans as being way ahead in terms of gender equity. But actually, again, if you look a little bit underneath at the statistics, they do are way ahead in terms of the government. So women are far more representative in government in Northern Europe than they are compared to the United States, which we're really behind the eight ball with that. But when you look at business, I think the United States statistically, it looks like the United States is actually more ahead. So for example, in Germany, there's a lot of pressure for women to stay home and be with the children for a poor portion of their career. So they have these long, really long, like years long maternity leaves, which actually makes a huge hit on their career. And even though we struggle in this country with family leave, 
I think the one advantage to, to having this struggle has enabled us to keep women in the workforce and engaged in the workforce so that women are actually much more representative as you go up the hierarchy than in a lot of European countries. And so I think, and that's really the best comparison. You got to look at West, the West, because in the, in the East and in any of the uh, developing countries, the, it's very clear that they're, they're, their statistics against women are absolutely horrible and need a significant amount of work. But so if you look at that comparative, I actually think the United States is further ahead in terms of business. I and mean, we got a heck of a long way to go, but this is a comparative. So to what extent can the groundwork for what you're you know, hoping will, will happen uh, in a more comprehensive and meaningful way in the workplace, to what extent can the groundwork be laid in in schools, whether it's colleges, grad schools, business schools, as opposed to trying to educate people uh, about gender equity, both from, you know, an equity perspective and, you know, a business perspective when they're actually in the workplace supervising other people and making hiring decisions. So it's funny because we've been talking about this education pipeline for a long time. And I always tell the story that I was a programmer in, early in my career. And when I was a programmer in the early 90s, late 80s, 40% of programmers were women. And now it's less than 20. So that education pipeline got shut down by societal pressures that basically said, women, you're not supposed to be a programmer. And by a creation of bro culture in many tech companies that basically women were like, I'm not working here. And so women left tech in far bigger percentages than men. And so if we just work at the pipeline level, then what will happen is we fail to actually change the organizations so that they're not welcoming, people don't feel like they belong, or they're not even leveraged, or talent isn't leveraged. We work with many tech companies, and the number of women who have told us that their tech credentials have been questioned in a meeting that they are running. It happens over and over again. So I don't think it's – this is a systemic problem. So therefore, we need systemic solutions. And I think one of the biggest levers for change are organizations themselves. Because if we start changing how organizations treat women and people of color and make it much more inclusive, make inclusivity a skill, a required skill for leadership, we change the way hiring works and promotion works and performance evaluation works, and we make these processes inclusive, then the organizations become magnets for this diverse talent. And then I believe it'll start to, you'll start to see a tipping point because once you see a tipping point where enough organizations have changed the way they work so that they get diverse talent, all the diverse talent's gonna go to them. And then all these other people are gonna be stuck with a homogenous talent pool and they're gonna be like, oh, we can't compete. And then everything's going to change. And so, and the other thing that I think is really important about this is that throughout this process, I think it's really important that we're not saying that, you know, white men are evil and should be, you know, taken out of the system. Actually, when you look at the data, when women and people of color went into the workforce in droves in the 70s and 80s, the total GDP went up. So what happens is, is you expand the economy. And you think about it, right? So as, as people, women and people of color got richer, they spent more, which created more businesses, which meant there's a lot more opportunity for people everywhere. So this is not fix pie. This is grow this pie. But we've got to help people get the skills in order to grow that pie. So during the course of the work you've done before and in the course of writing this book, what would you say surprised you the most about what you found? I don't know that, that I was surprised more. I think it was more 
I continually am surprised at the level of resistance to change um, by the people in power. And none of it is, most of it is not overt sexism or racism. And most of it is not, you know, I'm going to stay in power. Most of it is really subtle. Like, um, I don't agree, or I've got focused on this strategy, or I don't believe those numbers. They're just little ways that people are defensive because of fear. And so I guess what is surprising, but yet also just human nature, right, is that when we're asking people to change the way they do things, to think in a different way, they're resistant. Even though the thing that I think is the most surprising is that when you sit there and you ask somebody, do you want, we have a story in here talking about, you know, a woman named Terry who can't get into, you know, she can't be the astronaut she wants to be just because she's had a thousand different cuts before she even got the chance to become an astronaut. And if you tell somebody, do you really want the Terrys of the world to not be who they want to be? They're like, absolutely not. Of course I want her to reach her potential. But then when you talk about all the different ways that she gets blocked by reaching her potential, that's when the defensiveness shows up. So this gap between the reality and people's experiences, it's just, it's very, I just don't know what to do. I get saddened by it. So you touch upon this in the book, and you spoke about it a little bit at the beginning of our conversation, but could you address how the changes in the workforce since the pandemic affect the future of progress and gender equity in the workplace? The thing that I think is most upsetting to me is the fact that childcare was not a primary piece of our COVID response. And because women still traditionally, because of socialized biases, hold the predominant responsibility of childcare, and because many of the jobs that lost jobs, so for example, if you think about hotel workers, predominantly women and predominantly women of color. So when that market tanked, their jobs tanked too. And nobody thought about this. Like so childcare wasn't even part, barely part of, of, of our government's response. And even a lot of organizations were like, I don't want to hear about your child care problems. Now, some were very responsive at an organizational level. But that to me is like, it should have been like in, in Australia, they basically said, here's the child care, you have child care, don't even worry about it. And they created an entire social net around that. But here in this country, we still think of it as, you know, child care should be done something by families and predominantly women and you figure it out it's an individual problem. So this is a real, this is, it's really laid bare what's going on with COVID. And I'm hoping it laid bare enough that we can see, because we're going to, because our economy is going to significantly suffer because those women aren't in the marketplace. And, People don't want to think about it in those terms, but this is going to cost all of us money. And if we don't want to think about it from the human care perspective, then we got to think about it in the financial perspective because that seems to move people more. We just got to pay attention. It's just, it's, if we don't, I just, I get back to this lost potential, all that lost talent sitting on the table. So that could be somebody who's going to help us save global warming, somebody who's going to solve the next pandemic. If we can't get these people 
give them the opportunities simply because of their race or gender, then our whole world will be suffering. So overall, though, I'm, I'm very optimistic because this is all completely doable. We can make this change. Organizations can make this change, and individuals and teams and leaders can make this change. All it takes is a shift in mindset, a building up of our skills, and changing our organizational practices. And then we can start to see and leverage and build and use that incredible talent that's just ready for us to use. Well, it's uh, it's an important book, and, and thank you for, for your effort and your time today. Thank you, listeners. The book, again, is The Next Smart Step, How to Overcome Gender Stereotypes and Build a Stronger Organization. Kelly Watson, the co-author, the publisher is Charles Bridge. Thanks for tuning in. Please join us again soon for the next LitCast.